My invalid rest time at Styles had turned into an excitingly anxiety-inducing one. My friend, Hercule Poirot, the esteemed Belgian detective, had joined me to assist in the investigation of the death of my longtime friend, Emily Inglethorpe. Her death was agreed by most to be suspicious, and there was to be an inquest this very day. The family seemed to be in agreement that the most likely culprit was Emily's own husband, the obsequious Alfred Inglethorpe, although her younger stepson Lawrence now insisted that the whole thing was a hullabaloo over a simple case of natural heart seizure. Poirot, for his part, certainly seemed to expect foul play, and had been leading me a merry dance through the investigation, uncovering multiple wills, a newly planted bed of begonias, and an open dispatch case the latter of which had greatly perturbed my dapper friend, who had proceeded to throw what could only be described as a tantrum. As we headed from Stiles to return to Poirot's cottage in the village, however, I noted that my friend's eyes were again glowing a bright emerald cat green, a sure sign he was excited about something. I say, Poirot, do you think it was wise to show your frustration with yourself so openly? I mean, we're all and sundry could hear you? I think it should be... My friend, I have a little idea. A very strange and probably utterly impossible idea. And yet, it fits in. About the wills? Or the powders? Or, or the dispatch case? They have made one more discovery. Là-bas. Mr. Wells told me as we were going upstairs. What was it? Locked up in the desk in the boudoir, they found a will of Mrs. Inglethorpe's, dated before her marriage, leaving her fortune to Alfred Inglethorpe. It must have been made just at the time they were engaged. It came quite as a surprise to Wells, and to John Cavendish. It was written on one of those printed will forms and witnessed by two of the servants, not Dorcas. Did Mr. Inglethorpe know of it? He says not. One might take that with a grain of salt. Consider the source and all that. All these wills are very confusing. Tell me, how did those scribbled words on the envelope help you to discover that a will was made yesterday afternoon? Mon ami, have you ever, when writing a letter, been arrested by the fact that you did not know how to spell a certain word? Yes, I, I suppose everyone has. Exactly. And have you not, in such a case, tried the word once or twice on the edge of the blotting paper or a spare scrap of paper to see if it looked right? But that is what Mrs. Inglethorpe did. You will notice that the word possessed is spelt first with one S and subsequently with two, correctly. And to make sure, she had to further try it in a sentence. Thus, I am possessed. Now, what did that tell me? It told me that Mrs. Inglethorpe had been writing the word possessed that afternoon, and having the fragment of paper found in the grate fresh in my mind, the possibility of a will, a document almost certain to contain that word, occurred to me at once. 
This possibility was confirmed by a further circumstance. In the general confusion, the boudoir had not been swept that morning, and near the desk were several traces of brown mould and earth. Now, the weather had been perfectly fine for some days, and no ordinary boots would have left such a heavy deposit. I strolled to the window and saw at once that the begonia beds had been newly planted. The mould in the beds was exactly similar to that on the floor of the boudoir. And also I learned from you that they had been planted yesterday afternoon. I was now sure that one or possibly both of the gardeners, for there were two sets of footprints in the bed, had entered the boudoir. For if Mrs. Inglethorpe had merely wished to speak to them, she would in all probability have stood at the window and they would not have come into the room at all. I was now quite convinced that she had made a fresh will and had called the two gardeners in to witness her signature. Events proved that I was right in my supposition. That was very ingenious. I must confess that the conclusions I drew from those few scribbled words were quite erroneous. <laughs> oh, you gave too much rein to your imagination. Imagination is a good servant and a bad master. The simplest explanation is always most likely. Another point. How did you know that the key of the despatch case had been lost? Oh, merely a guess that turns out to be correct. You observed that it had a piece of twisted wire through the handle. That suggested to me at once that it had possibly been wrenched off a flimsy key ring. Now, if it had been lost and recovered, Mrs. Inglethorpe would at once have replaced it on her bunch. But on her bunch, I found what was obviously the duplicate key, very new and bright, which led me to the hypothesis that somebody else had inserted the original key in the lock of the dispatch case. Yes. Alfred Inglethorpe, without doubt. You are very sure of his guilt? Well, naturally. Every fresh circumstance seems to establish it more clearly. <laughs> On this we disagree. There are several points in his favour. Oh, come now. I can see only one. <laughs> and that is? That he was not in the house last night. <gasps> Bad shot, as you English say. You have chosen the one point that, to my mind, tells against him. How is that? Because if Mr. Inglethorpe knew that his wife would be poisoned last night, he would certainly have arranged to be away from the house. His excuse was an obviously trumped-up one. That leaves us two possibilities. Either he knew what was going to happen, or he had a reason of his own for his absence. And that reason? Oh, how should I know? It's credible, without doubt. This Mr. Inglethorpe, I should say, is somewhat of a scoundrel. But that does not of necessity make him a murderer. I shook my head, unconvinced. We do not agree, eh? <laughs> well, let us leave it. Time will show which of us is right. Now, let us turn to other aspects of the case. What do you make of the fact that all the doors of the bedroom were bolted on the inside? Well, uh, one must look at it logically. 
Indeed. The little grey cells must be employed with method and order. I should put it this way. The doors were bolted. Our own eyes told us that. Yet the presence of the candle grease on the floor and the destruction of the will proved that during the night someone entered the room. You agree so far? Perfectly. Put with admirable clearness. Proceed. Well, uh, well, uh, as the person who entered did not do so by the window, nor by miraculous means, it, it follows that the door must have been opened from inside by Mrs. Inglethorpe herself. That strengthens the conviction that the person in question was her husband. Uh, she would naturally open the door for her own husband. <laughs> On that point, we disagree. Why should she? She had bolted the door leading into his room, a most unusual proceeding on her part. She had had a most violent quarrel with him that very afternoon. No, he was the last person she would admit. But you agree with me that the door must have been opened by Mrs. Inglethorpe herself? There is another possibility. She may have forgotten to bolt the door into the passage when she went to bed and have got up later, towards morning, and bolted it then. Poro, is that seriously your opinion? No, I do not say it is so, but it might be. <laughs> now, to turn to another feature, what do you make of the scrap of conversation you overheard between Mrs. Cavendish and her mother-in-law? The one that you overheard on your way to the tennis with the young Mademoiselle Cynthia? I'd forgotten that. That is as enigmatical as ever. It seems incredible that a woman like Mrs. Cavendish, proud and, and reticent to the last degree, should interfere so violently in what was certainly not her affair. Precisely. It was an astonishing thing for a woman of her breeding to do. It is certainly curious. Uh, still, it is unimportant. It need not be taken into account. <sighs> no. What have I always told you? Everything must be taken into account. If the fact will not fit the theory, let the theory go. Well, we shall see. Yes, we shall see. As Poirot and I approached his home at Leastaway's cottage, I couldn't help but be a little irritated with my friend. Why was he so stubborn? Why was he casting suspicion at a beautiful woman instead of at the clear culprit? Alfred Inglethorpe was obviously a man of low moral fibre, and he stood to gain... My reverie was interrupted by the arrival of a frantic young man, a spindly fellow, all elbows, rushing towards us. His face held an expression that was a mixture of terror, agitation, and excitement. I say, that chap's in an awful hurry. Yeah, it is Mr. Mace from the chemist shop. I wonder... Oh, Mr. Poirot, I'm sorry for the inconvenience. So rude to barge up to you like this. But I just heard you would come back from Styles. Yes, that is correct. It's all over the village about old Mrs. Inglethorpe dying so suddenly. They do say that it's poison. <laughs> Only the doctors can tell us that, Mr. Mace. Yes, exactly. Of course. <laughs> Just tell me this, Mr. Poirot. It isn't... It isn't... 
Strychnine, is it? I am afraid I am unable to say at this moment, Monsieur Mace. I am unable to say. I presume I shall see you at the inquest? Yes, I've been asked to give evidence. Ah, assuredly. I shall see you at the juncture, if you will excuse me. Certainly. My apologies for the intrusion. Once again. Hastings, enter if you please. Poro, what was that about? Do you reckon he had... Uh, Not now, not now, mon ami. I have need of reflection. My mind is in some disorder, which is not well. We entered his small cottage. For about ten minutes he sat in dead silence, perfectly still, except for several expressive motions of his eyebrows, and all the time his eyes grew steadily greener. At last, he heaved a deep sigh. It is well. The bad moment has passed. Now all is arranged and classified. One must never permit confusion. The case is not clear yet, no. For it is of the most complicated. It puzzles me. Me, Herkiaporo! There are two facts of significance. And what are they? First is the state of the weather yesterday. That is very important. But it was a glorious day. Come on, Poirot, you're pulling my leg. Not at all. I do not pull on the leg. The thermometer registered 80 degrees in the shade. Do not forget that, my friend. It is the key to the whole riddle. And the second point? The important fact that Monsieur Inglethorpe wears very peculiar clothes, has a black beard, and uses glasses. Poirot, I I cannot believe you are serious. I am absolutely serious, my friend. But this is childish. On the contrary, it is very momentous. And supposing the coroner's jury returns a verdict of willful murder against Alfred Inglethorpe, what becomes of your theories then? They would not be shaken because... Twelve stupid men had happened to make a mistake, but that will not occur. For one thing, a country jury is not anxious to take responsibility upon itself, and Mr. Inglethorpe stands practically in the position of local squire. Also, I should not allow it. You would not allow it? No! Yes, mon ami, I would do what I say. In all this, you see, I think of that poor Mrs. Inglethorpe who is dead. She was not extravagantly loved, no, but she was very good to us Belgians. I owe her a debt. But... Let me tell you this, Hastings. She would never forgive me if I let Alfred Inglethorpe, her husband, be arrested now, when a word from me could save him. In the interval before the inquest, Poirot was unfailing in his activity. Twice he was closeted with Mr. Wells, He also took long walks into the country. I rather resented his not taking me into his confidence, the more so as I could not in the least guess what he was driving at. He did seem obsessed that Dorcas must have heard voices at 4.30, and not fore-on as she had believed. But the staunch Dorcas remained unshakably firm in her assertion. 
It occurred to me that Poirot might have been making inquiries at Rake's farm, so finding him out when I called at Leastway's cottage on Wednesday evening, I walked over there by the fields, hoping to meet him. But there was no sign of him, and I hesitated to go right up to the farm itself. As I walked away, I met an aged rustic who leered at me cunningly. You'm from the Orr, aren't you? Uh, yes, I'm looking for a friend of mine whom I thought might have walked this way. A little chap, as waves his hands when he talks. One of them Belgies from the village. Yes, he has been here then? Oh, aye, he's been here right enough. More than once too. Friend of yours, is he? Ah, you gentlemen from Styles. You're a pretty lot. Why, do the gentlemen from Styles come here often? One does, mister, naming no names, mind. And a very liberal gentleman, too. Oh. Uh, thank you. Thank you, sir. I'm sure. Good afternoon. Afternoon, sir. Alfred Inglethorpe and Mrs. Rakes. So good old Evelyn Howard was right. What a cad that Inglethorpe is. The inquest was held on Friday at the Stylites Arms in the village. Poirot and I sat together, not being required to give evidence. The preliminaries were gone through. The jury viewed the body, and John Cavendish gave evidence of identification. Further questioned, he described his awakening in the early hours of the morning and the circumstances of his mother's death. The medical evidence was taken next. There was a breathless hush, and every eye was fixed on the famous London specialist Dr. Bowerstein, who was known to be one of the greatest authorities of the day on the subject of toxicology. And, in conclusion, we have determined that the post-mortem proves that Miss Emily Inglethorpe met her death as a result of administration of not less than three-quarters of a grain of strychnine, but, in my opinion, probably closer to more than one grain in reality. Was it possible that she could have swallowed the poison by accident? I shall consider it very unlikely. Strychnine is not used for domestic purposes, as some poisons are, and there are restrictions placed on its sale. Does anything in your examination lead you to determine how the poison was administered? No. You arrived at Stiles before Dr. Wilkins, I believe? That is so. The motor met me just outside the large gates as I happened by, and I hurried there as fast as I could. Will you relate to us exactly what happened next? I entered Mrs. Inglethorpe's room. She was, at that moment, in a typical tectonic convulsion. She turned towards me and gasped out, Alfred, Alfred. Uh, could the strychnine have been administered in Mrs. Inglethorpe's after-dinner coffee, which was taken to her by her husband? Possibly. But strychnine is a fairly rapid drug in its action. The symptoms appear from one to two hours after it has been swallowed. It is retarded under certain circumstances, 
none of which, however, appear to have been present in this case. I presume Mrs. Inglethorpe took the coffee after dinner about eight o'clock, whereas the symptoms did not manifest themselves until the early hours of the morning, which, on the face of it, points to the drug having been taken much later in the evening. Mrs. Inglethorpe was in the habit of drinking a cup of cocoa in the middle of the night. Could the strychnine have been administered in that? No. I myself took a sample of the cocoa remaining in the saucepan and had it analysed. There was no strychnine present. Ah, voilà the cocoa, mon ami. <laughs> How did you know? Écoutez. I should say that I would have been considerably surprised at any other result. And why is that? Simply because strychnine has an unusually bitter taste. It can be detected in a solution of one in 70,000, and can only be disguised by some strongly flavoured substance. Cocoa would be quite powerless to mask it. Would this also eliminate the poison being placed in coffee? No. Coffee has a bitter taste of its own, which would probably cover the taste of strychnine. Well, then you consider it more likely that the drug was administered in the coffee, but that for some unknown reason its action was delayed? Yes, but the cup being completely smashed, there's no possibility of analysing its contents. And you would not consider the notion that the deceased could have administered this dose to herself willingly? I would almost entirely rule out the possibility of suicide, the deceased was a picture of health, aside from her weak heart. Thank you, Doctor. Most informative. We will next call Lawrence Cavendish. Lawrence gave evidence that was, for the most part, a reiteration of his brother's testimony. As he was about to be dismissed, however, he hesitated. I should like to make a suggestion, if I may. Certainly, Mr. Cavendish. We are here to arrive at the truth of this matter, and welcome anything that may lead to further elucidation. It's just an idea of mine. Of course, I may be quite wrong, but it still seems to me that my mother's death might be accounted for by natural means. How do you make that out, Mr. Cavendish? My mother, at the time of her death, and for some time before it, was taking a tonic containing strychnine. Go on. I believe that there have been cases where the cumulative effect of a drug administered for some time has ended by causing death. Also, is it not possible that she might have taken an overdose of a medicine by accident? Well, this is the first we have heard of the deceased taking strychnine at the time of her death. Uh, we are much obliged to you, Mr. Cavendish. I would like to recall, Dr. Bowerstein, your response to this, sir? What Mr. Cavendish suggests is quite impossible. Any doctor would tell you the same. Strychnine is, in a certain sense, a cumulative poison. But it would be quite impossible for it to result in a sudden death in this way. There would have been a long period of chronic symptoms, which would at once have attracted my attention. The whole thing is absurd. And the second suggestion, that Mrs. Inglethorpe may have inadvertently taken an overdose. Three, or even four doses, would not have resulted in death. 
Mrs. Inglethorpe always had an extra large amount of medicine made up at a time, as she dealt with Coots, the cash chemist in Tadminster. She would have had to take very nearly the whole bottle to account for the amount of strychnine found at the post-mortem. Well, then you consider that we may dismiss the tonic as not being in any way instrumental in causing her death? Certainly. The supposition is ridiculous. Could there have been an error in the dose included by the chemist in making the prescription? That, of course, is always possible. The inquest rolled on. The issue of the powders brought forth by Lawrence was finally laid to rest when Dorcas testified that the prescription from the pharmacy was not new, and, in fact, her mistress had almost reached the final dose. The loyal servant then went on to describe the quarrel she had overheard, in much the same way she had to Poirot and myself previously. The next person called was Mary Cavendish. What alerted you, Mrs. Cavendish, to the events of the evening? Well, my alarm clock had rung at 4.30, as it does each morning, so I was in the process of dressing when I heard a loud thump, like something heavy falling. That would have been the table by the bed. I opened my door and listened. In a few minutes, a bell rang violently. Dorcas came running down and woke my husband, and we all went to my mother-in-law's room, but it was locked. I really do not think we need trouble you further on that point. We know all that can be known of the subsequent happenings, but I should be obliged if you would tell us all that you overheard of the quarrel the day before. Quarrel? Yes. I understand that you were sitting reading on the bench just outside the long window of the boudoir. That is so, is it not? Yes, that is so. And the boudoir window was open, was it not? Yes. Well, then you cannot have failed to hear the voices inside, especially as they were raised in anger. In fact, they would be more audible where you were than in the hall. Possibly. Will you repeat to us what you overheard of the quarrel? I really do not remember hearing anything. Do you mean to say you did not hear voices? Oh, yes, I heard the voices, but I did not hear what they said. I am not in the habit of listening to private conversations. And you remember nothing at all? Nothing, Mrs. Cavendish? Not one stray word or phrase to make you realize that it was a private conversation? Yes, I remember. Mrs. Inglethorpe said something, I do not remember exactly what, about causing scandal between husband and wife. Ah, that corresponds with what Dorcas heard. But excuse me, Mrs. Cavendish, although you realized it was a private conversation, you did not move away? You remained where you were? No, I was very comfortable where I was. I fixed my mind on my book. And that is all you can tell us? That is all. The examination was over, though I doubted if the coroner was entirely satisfied with it. I think he suspected that Mary Cavendish could tell more if she chose. Amy Hill, the shop assistant, was called next, and deposed to having sold a will form on the afternoon of the 17th to William Earle, undergardener at Stiles. William Earle and Manning succeeded her, and testified to witnessing a document 
Manning fixed the time at about 4.30. William was of the opinion that it was rather earlier. Cynthia Murdoch came next. She had, however, little to tell. She had known nothing of the tragedy until awakened by Mrs. Cavendish. You did not hear the table fall? No, I was out like a light. I'm afraid I'm a very deep sleeper. <laughs> a good conscience makes a sound sleeper. Thank you, Miss Murdoch. That is all. Miss Howard. This is a letter written to me by my dear Emily on the evening of the 17th. Uh, please read it to the court. Certainly. <clears throat> Styles Court, Essex, July 17th. My dear Evelyn, can we not bury the hatchet? I have found it hard to forgive the things you said against my dear husband, but I am an old woman and very fond of you. Yours affectionately, Emily Inglethorpe. There is no mention of any of the events of that afternoon. I fear this does not help to clarify anything for- Complain is a pikestaff to me. It shows clearly enough that my poor old friend had just found out she'd been made a fool of. It does not say so directly in the letter. No, because Emily never could bear to put herself in the wrong. Oh, but I know her. She wanted me back, but she wasn't going to own that I'd been right. She went round about. Most people do. I don't believe in it myself. Anyway... All this tomfoolery is a great waste of time. Talk, 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 when all the time we know perfectly well that... Thank you, Miss Howard, that is all. We call Albert Mace, chemist's assistant. Mr. Mace, have you lately sold a strychnine to any unauthorized person? Yes, sir. And when was this? Last Monday night. Monday the 16th. Will you tell us to whom you sold it? Yes, sir. It was to Mr. Inglethorpe. <gasps> you are sure of what you say? Quite sure, sir. Are you in the habit of selling strychnine indiscriminately over the counter? Oh, no, of course not. But seeing it was Mr. Inglethorpe of the hall, I thought there was no harm in it. He said it was to poison a dog. Is it not customary for anyone purchasing poison to sign a book? Yes, sir. Mr. Inglethorpe did so. Have you got the book here? Yes, sir. Mm, noted. That will be all, Mr. Mace. Oh, thank you, sir. I call Alfred Inglethorpe. On Monday evening last, did you purchase strychnine for the purpose of poisoning a dog? No, I did not. There is no dog at Styles, except an outdoor sheep dog, which is in perfect health. You deny absolutely having purchased strychnine from Albert Mace on Monday last? I do. Do you also deny this? Is this not your signature in the registry book from the chemist's shop? Certainly, I do deny it. The handwriting is quite different from mine. I'll show you. There. Totally dissimilar. Then what is your explanation of Mr. Mace's statement? Mr. Mace must have been mistaken. Mr. Inglethorpe, as a mere matter of form, 
would you mind telling us where you were on the evening of Monday, July 16th? Oh, really? I cannot remember. That is absurd, Mr. Inglethorpe. Think again. I have an idea that I was out walking. In what direction? I really can't remember. Were you in company with anyone? No. Did you meet anyone on your walk? No. That is a pity. I am to take it, then, that you decline to say where you were at the time that Mr. Mace positively recognised you as entering the shop to purchase strychnine. <laughs> if you like to take it that way, yes. Be careful, Mr. Inglethorpe. Sacre! Does this imbecile of a man want to be arrested? You had a discussion with your wife on Tuesday afternoon. Uh, pardon me, you have been misinformed. I had no quarrel with my dear wife. The whole story is absolutely untrue. I was absent from the house the entire afternoon. Have you anyone who can testify to that? You have my word. There are two witnesses who will swear to having heard your disagreement with Mrs. Inglethorpe. Those witnesses were mistaken. Mr. Inglethorpe, you have heard your wife's dying words repeated here. Can you explain them in any way? Certainly I can. You can? It seems to me very simple. The room was dimly lighted. Dr. Bowerstein, as much of my height and build, and, like me, wears a beard. In the dim light and suffering as she was, my poor wife mistook him for me. Ah, but it is an idea, that. You think it is true? I do not say that. You read my wife's last words as an accusation. They were, on the contrary, an appeal to me. I believe... Mr. Inglethorpe, that you yourself poured out the coffee and took it to your wife that evening? I poured it out, yes, but I did not take it to her. I meant to do so, but I was told that a friend was at the hall door, so I laid down the coffee on the hall table. When I came through the hall again a few minutes later, it was gone. As the testimony concluded, I was still irritated that Poirot seemed so focused, allowing every opportunity to Alfred Inglethorpe to prove his innocence. It was baffling. Just then, my friend pointed out a man in official-looking dark clothes towards the back of the room. That is Detective Inspector James Jap of Scotland Yard. Jimmy Jap. Things are moving quickly, my friend. The verdict is... Willful murder against some person or persons unknown. I could imagine the headlines and scandal now. I was in a hurry to return to Styles, but Poirot was lagging behind. It was clear to me he wanted to speak to the gentleman from Scotland Yard, who approached us in due course. Why, if it isn't Mr. Poirot, it was back in 1904 we last worked together. The Abercrombie Forgery case, you remember? He was run down in Brussels. Oh, those were the good days, monsieur. I need hardly ask what you are doing here, Inspector. No, indeed. Pretty clear case, I should say. More's the pity. There I differ from you. Well, so far we've only seen the case from the outside. That's where the yard's at a disadvantage in a case of this kind. Where the murderer's only out, so to speak. 
after the inquest. A lot depends on being on the spot first. And that's where you've had the head start on us, Poirot. We shouldn't have been here as soon as this even. If it hadn't been for the fact that there was a smart doctor on the spot who gave us the tip through the coroner. But you've been on the spot from the first. And you may have picked up some little hints. From the evidence at the inquest, Mr. Inglethorpe murdered his wife as sure as I stand here. And if anyone but you hinted the contrary, I'd laugh in his face. I must say I was surprised the jury didn't bring it in willful murderer against him right off. I think they would have, if it hadn't been for the coroner. He seemed to be holding them back. Perhaps, though you have a warrant for his arrest in your pocket now? Perhaps I have, and perhaps I haven't. I am very anxious that he should not be arrested. Can't you go a little further, Mr. Poirot? A wink's as good as a nod from you. You've been on the spot, and the Yard doesn't want to make any mistakes, you know. That is exactly what I thought. <laughs> well, I would tell you this. Use your warrant. Arrest Mr. Inglethorpe. But it will bring you no kudos. The case against him will be dismissed at once. Come, sir. Oh, come on, Poirot, oh boy. I daren't do it, Mr. Poirot. I'll take your word, but there's others over me who will be asking what the devil I mean by it. Can't you give me a little more to go on? I can. It forces my hand. I would have preferred to work in the dark just for the present. But what you say is very just. The word of a Belgian policeman whose day is past is not enough. And Alfred Inglethorpe must not be arrested. That I have sworn as my friend Hastings here knows. See then, my good chap. You go at once to Styles. Well, in about half an hour, we're seeing the coroner and the doctor first. Good. Uh, call for me in passing. The last house in the village. I will go with you. At Stiles, Mr. Inglethorpe will give you, or if he refuses, as is probable, I will give you such proofs that shall satisfy you that the case against him could not possibly be sustained. Is that a bargain? That's a bargain. And on behalf of the Yard, I'm much obliged to you. Though I'm bound to confess, I can't at present see the faintest possible loophole in the evidence. But you always were a marvel. So long then, monsieur. After more discussion with Poirot on various theories involving the testimony of certain family members, whether men were clean-shaven and other miscellany that I will elaborate further upon at a later time, I found myself back at Styles. The drawing room was filled with family members, as well as Poirot and the stoic Inspector Jap. Madame the Messieurs, I have asked you to come here altogether for a certain object. That object, it concerns Mr. Alfred Inglethorpe. Mr. Inglethorpe, a very dark shadow is resting on this house. The shadow of murder. My poor wife, my poor Emily, it is terrible. I do not think, monsieur, that you quite realize how terrible it may be for you. You are standing in very grave danger. Poirot, careful there. Do you understand now, monsieur? No. What do you mean? I mean that you are suspected of poisoning your wife. <sighs> <sighs> 
Good heavens! Oh, what a monstrous idea! I poison my dearest Emily? I do not think that you quite realize the unfavorable nature of your evidence at the inquest. Mr. Inglethorpe, knowing what I have told you, do you still refuse to say where you were at six o'clock on Monday afternoon? <sighs> speak! Save yourself! You will not speak? No. I do not believe that anyone could be so monstrous as to accuse me of what you say. In that case, Mr. Inglethorpe. Swa, then I must speak for you. You? How, how can you speak? You do not know. Madame et Messieurs, I speak. Listen. I, Hercule Poirot, affirm that the man who entered the chemist's shop and purchased strychnine at six o'clock on Monday last was not Mr. Inglethorpe. For at six o'clock on that day, Mr. Inglethorpe was escorting Mrs. Rakes back to her home from a neighbouring farm. I can produce no less than five witnesses to swear to having seen them together, either at six or just after. And as you may know, the Abbey Farm, Mrs. Rakes's home, is at least two and a half miles distant from the village. There is absolutely no question as to the alibi. As the room broke into stunned turmoil, Inspector Jap put away his handcuffs reluctantly, and my friend sat in the centre of it all, green eyes glowing. But if it wasn't Inglethorpe, who killed Emily? Thank you for listening to Murder in Your Ear. We appreciate you. To receive access to specialized content and to continue to support our quality programming, we invite you to visit our brand new Patreon site at www.patreon.com forward slash murder in your ear. That's www.patreon.com forward slash murder in your ear. And as always, Find us on Facebook and Instagram at NRM Performance and Twitter at Murder Ear.